0: Welcome to the podcast of The Table of Minneapolis Church. We are a community that is committed to practicing the ways of Jesus by creating space for all to belong and be loved. Our hope is that in this podcast, in the message that you will hear, that you'll be reminded again of the eternal truth that no matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, the places that you've gone or the places that you've stayed, there will always be a seat here for you at the table. For you're a child of God. And beloved, you belong. Enjoy this week's message.
1: Hey everyone, happy pride. <laughs> Woo! Um, I always get a little nervous up here, so if I just blank out, um, don't worry. Um, so uh over a few weeks ago, um, it was brought up in conversations about the table that we needed to do something special for uh, Pride, and specifically Pride weekend. Um, And when that was brought up, when I was in the room, um, just immediately I thought we had to have my friend Austin um, come in and speak with us, and I'm so grateful that he's uh, here um, with such short notice. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Austin is a uh, he's an author um, of the book Transforming. Um, uh, and see this is where I blank <laughs> the subtitle, but the lives of transgender Christians, so it's it's about, uh, it explores uh, the biblical conversation about that and lets trans Christians speak for themselves in the text, it's a beautiful book, um, he's a speaker, um, and he's also just doing incredible things um, in our city, in our state right now. Um, Austin and I have run in similar circles. Um, and But it wasn't until um, at Rachel Held Evans' funeral that we were able to sit and actually have a conversation about what he's doing um, right now. Um, and I just wanted to share a little bit about that, and I asked him if I could. Um, but uh, Austin recently got a grant from uh, the Bush Foundation. Um, and I'm going to butcher exactly what he's doing, but I was so moved in the moment when I heard it. <laughs> um, he is going out and uh, speaking with rural churches in Minnesota um, who are uh, asking questions about what it means to be transgender, um, who have people in their community that have come out as transgender, and Austin has stepped up to the plate and says, I will go there, I will talk with you guys, Um, and he has such a wealth of knowledge and intellect and passion that he brings uh, to this work, and I'm, yeah, I just feel honored to have him here and yeah, I'm just happy he's here. So, without further ado, uh, this is my friend Austin Yeah.
2: Thanks. <laughs> you did great. You did great. Hi, everyone. I'm a nervous walker while I talk, so I'm just going to put that stool over there so I can nervously walk around and share these slides with you. I'm so glad to be here today. I love all of your Love Thy Neighbor shirts. They look great. I went with a little bit more of an in-your-face shirt tonight. And I feel like... <laughs> Maybe I should have toned that back a little bit, but... No, you're good. <laughs> um, So I'm so glad to be here. I'm here to tell you a little bit about me, a little bit about my story, kind of bring you along on that, and to tell you about um, some of the things that I have learned along the way when it comes to learning how to feel grounded in your faith and your identity, um, especially when the world is trying to tell you that you get to choose one or the other, right? Um, when I talk to parents a lot of the time, parents who have LGBTQ plus kids, Um, I, I talk to them and I say, like, there's this pressure, this external pressure from the world to choose either your identity or your faith, and it's like being asked to choose whether you would rather cut off an arm or a leg. Like, neither of those is a good choice, right? Neither of those is healthy for a person. Um, And we, I think a lot of folks in the LGBTQ plus community have had to, in a lot of cases, cut off that part of ourselves that's connected to our faith in order to just survive, right? And that's like, there's no shame in that. That's had to, for many of us, has been a necessary part of our journey. Um, But for those of us who feel called to find ways to embrace our faith and can find healthy ways to do that. Um, one of the first ways back in for a lot of people is trying to understand scripture. And so that was the case for me. That was the case for my my story. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about me and how this came about. Let's see if I can run this, though. We'll, we'll find out if I can run the, <laughs> run the presentation. Wait for it. Oh, oh, there we go. Let's see if it'll let me run to the next slide. Maybe not. There we go. All right. Here's some photos of me, (laughs) me and uh, my life. So that first photo there on the left hand side is me when I was about uh, like nine years old or so. Um, That was my first time playing uh, baseball and it was my favorite thing. When I was born, um, I was assigned female at birth. So I was born and the doctors took one look at one very small part of me and went, it's a girl. Congratulations. And then about mm, 25 years later, I got to be like, you're wrong. And that was very satisfying for me. Uh, What it meant for me to be assigned female at birth, um, in my context, growing up in a conservative evangelical church that had a lot of feelings about gender roles and what women and men are supposed to do and not supposed to do, uh, what that meant for me was um, feeling this sort of, Constant distress about not fitting into the box that I was supposed to fit into, uh, recognizing that that was the way that I liked to dress, and that most of the time I got called my parents' son, and that pleased me but made them very upset. Right? Um, that was kind of the background of my growing up as a little kid. Um, for the theological factor, right? I grew up in a church. Um, it was, uh, if you're familiar with Vineyard churches, I grew up in Vineyard churches, and um, the one that we were particularly sort of a part of did tend to say negative things about LGBTQ plus folks, especially at the time when we were attending it back, you know, in the 90s. They were, I think this particular church may have been a little bit more verbal than other churches in the, the denomination may have been. But I never heard anything positive about LGBTQ plus people in the church. I only heard negative things. Um, and. The only things that I heard were around specifically around, like, uh, gay and lesbian relationships, and then generally people not fitting into the gender role that they were supposed to have, right? Men are protectors. Men are leaders. Men are the people that are going to, like, stand up and do stuff. And women are the people who would stay home and take care of things in the house and take care of the kids. And there were these very specific gender roles that people were supposed to fill. So that being the context in which I grew up, uh, I had this sense of something being wrong with me, right? Like when you grow up in a system where there's no place for you, you kind of assume that you are the problem, right? So the other theological component of this was growing up in a church that talked a lot about, um, and like this is theological, but talked a lot about original sin and how all people are broken and we require forgiveness, which is, like, all theological and accurate and true, but, like, the way that it was brought about and talked about made it very specific that um, some people were more broken than other people, right? Uh, Some people needed to repent more than other people. That was kind of this feeling. And so when I grew up feeling like I didn't fit into this system, I immediately connected that to this concept of sin. I was like, okay, I don't fit in. There must be something wrong with me. I am, you know, a bad person inherently. And that's kind of like what I grew up with. That was the internal language that I used to make sense of this. Um, It wasn't until I was a teenager, um, when I was about uh, 14 or so, uh, that this actually became something that was (laughs) relevant to my life in that moment. because being assigned female at birth, and then falling in love with my best friend, who was a girl, as you do, falling in love with your best friend, um, (laughs) this this was suddenly like a problem that was relevant to my life, right? It was more than just like what I had heard from pastors and what I had read in books and whatever. Suddenly this was my life that was happening. Um, That second photo there is my senior photo from high school. Um, And so there was this period in high school where I was trying to figure out how to deal with my sexuality, right? And that was the first thing that I kind of had to wrestle with, because when I heard that um, it was possible to be gay, lesbian, or bisexual, because that was really all I had framework for, like, bi was like on the far edge of like weird things at that point, right? Um, That was all I had language for. And um, so when I found this language and when I found that there were people living in the world in, like, great relationships who just happened to be gay, and everybody didn't die in their 30s from, you know, the effects of sin. This was, like, a mind-blowing thing for me, right? This was, like, huge. Um, And I started to just piece together, like, okay, maybe it's possible to be a bisexual person and, like, have a happy life. Like, that was a revelation, right? The next step was maybe it's possible to be bisexual and still have my faith. And that was sort of, like, a big leap to make. I was helped in this big leap by joining uh, the church of the girl that I was in love with. (laughs) She said, do you want to come to sing in choir with me? And I, choir was my favorite thing. And I said, you know, like one more time a week to sing in choir, I'm down. Even if I have to go to church, at least I get to sing in choir. So I follow her to church and I start going to this church with her. And this is a um, uh, evangelical Lutheran church down in Northfield, Minnesota, where I grew up. And uh, that was the first church where I didn't hear a single negative thing about LGBT people, and I th- like that was enough to blow me away. Like there's no negative stuff. Amazing. Um, <laughs> but that was the first time that I had a church family of people come around me and say like, "Hey, do you want to like, do you want to uh, lead this thing? Do you want to help with the youth group and this thing?" Like, um, knowing that I was like I wasn't. Um, In the beginning, I wasn't screaming it at the top of my lungs. Eventually, I was pretty much fully decked out in rainbow things. But like (laughs) it didn't start like that. But they they just accepted that about me. They were just like, that's just who you are and that's okay." And that was like my first step on this sort of like, oh, my gosh, maybe I could have all these things at the same time, right? Um, That third picture there, third from the left, is me uh, at age 20, 20 or 21. I can't remember now. That was the day that I decided to get baptized, because I had never been baptized before. Um, As an infant growing up in a denomination that didn't do infant baptism, we did like dedication as babies, and then you chose to get baptized later, right? I'd never been baptized. So imagine me, a 14-year-old, sitting in like classes with other 14-year-olds at this Lutheran church, and they keep talking about, like, well, we've all been baptized, and we're all one. And I'm just sitting there like, not me. Like, yet again, I'm the weirdo, the one that doesn't fit in again. Um, and I talked for a long time with a pastor about, like, is this something I want to do? Do I actually want to get baptized? Because suddenly it felt, like, it felt like everybody else had been grandfathered in on this plan, and now I had to actually make an active choice that nobody else had had to make. <laughs> so I took it really seriously. I was like, okay, if I'm going to get baptized, I want to, like, believe this stuff forward and backward. I want to believe every bit of this. And I was so hung up on this sort of, like, need to believe every bit of the dogma uh, that I kept tripping myself up because there would be things that I wouldn't agree with. And so I'd come into my pastor, and at this point I was going to school three hours away, and I would drive down on the weekends to talk to my pastor and say, please explain this to me. And I would show up with, like, the small catechism and, like, Luther's works and be like, explain. I need to understand all of this. And eventually we were sitting and having this conversation one day, and he said, uh, when I kind of explained, like, I feel like I need to say yes to every bit of this in order to say yes to God. And he said, Two things, first of all, baptism is not about you agreeing to a set of statements and signing your name in blood. (laughs) Baptism is something already done for you and you're responding to that, so that's one. But two, faith is not about you as an individual believing every single thing in this book. Faith is something we do in community, and there are going to be part times when, like, the person next to you is going to be able to believe something that you can't believe, and they can hold that for you. And there are times when you're going to be able to believe some things that they can't, and you can hold that for them. And it's like this big blanket that we're all kind of like taking a hold of, and we hold it together, not individually. And that was the second time that I was like, like, this could be possible. It could be possible to be myself and to have my faith and be in a relationship with God, and like, this could work. So from there, after school, I ended up going to seminary because even though I knew I didn't have to agree with every single thing, I still wanted to know the answer to every single thing. So I, of course, went to seminary, the place where you go to learn all the answers. (laughs) No, don't don't do that. Don't get tricked into student loan for that. (laughs) But seminary was a wonderful place to learn to ask good questions. And it was a place where I got to study the Bible in a way I'd never been able to study it before. Um, It was a place where I got to dig into foundational texts and say, like, how is this, how does this work and how does this relate? And I immediately got sucked into Old Testament scholarship because those were all the verses that had been used against me like as a teenager, right, when I was first coming out. So I was like, all right, there's got to be more to this, this sort of prevailing idea of like Old Testament angry God and New Testament loving God. and like, there's got to be more to it than that. So I started digging in and came to a point where Uh, I had figured out a lot about myself, my identity and my sexuality. I had figured out a lot about my faith and I still have lots of questions, but I was feeling a little bit more grounded. And that was at the point that I was like, well, now I have to actually think about this gender thing that I have not wanted to think about because I've already come out one time. Why would I want to come out again? Like (laughs) who would want to do that whole thing twice for me? coming out as transgender and saying, hey, this is something I've known for as long as I've had words to explain it. Um, That was something that I had to do in order to be in authentic relationship with other people and in authentic relationship with God. You can't um, be fully known and fully loved if you've got one part of yourself that you're like, no, don't look at this, you know, like, you've got to be able to let yourself be open enough Um, to be seen in order to be fully loved, and it just kind of became something that was more and more obvious to me. So that last picture there on the right is my graduation day from seminary. Um, However, I was not actually out as transgender at that point. Never — like, look at that photo. Everybody knew, but I wasn't officially out. Um, I wasn't totally sure they were going to let me graduate from seminary if I came out as trans because nobody, no trans people had ever graduated. No open trans people had ever graduated from that institution at that point. So I decided to wait until they handed me my diploma, then I was like, thank you, surprise, and <laughs> left. Um, since then, we've had two other trans folks who are wonderful graduate from the same institution and they're doing a really good job. It's been hard for them, but it's, they've been doing a great job. So um, my fear maybe was a little bit unwarranted, but it was still real fear. <laughs> so having said all this, um, I want to introduce you to some questions that I had to ask sort of along the way and in my journey. Let's see if I can get to the next slide, maybe. There it is. So here are my three big questions that I had to ask throughout this this time, right? Um, The first one was, do I have to fit a particular narrative when it comes to being trans? Because it's so much easier when we have a sort of like... Um, flow chart for things in our world, like well, you are trans if you have had these certain experiences, and like it 's easier for us if we have framework right, um, and so for me, coming out as trans, it almost felt like I had to check a list, check a bunch of boxes, like you have to answer eighty percent of these correctly in order to be trans <laughs> like that was my first question was about how do I fit this narrative or not fit this narrative? The second question was, what does the Bible say, and growing up in a uh, in a church that was really big on textual authority, that was a big question for me, even as somebody who understood the Bible differently than I used to when I was growing up. The third question was, what is the church gonna do about this if I want to be part of a church? Um, And the answer to that question, um, it could be as simple as like, well, find an affirming church. But I wasn't speaking just specifically about one individual church that would accept me as an individual. I also wanted to know, like, what is the church in general doing about gender diversity? How is this going to work? So these were the questions that I was asking. I want to introduce you to a couple of words here um, when it comes to trans identities. Let's see. Wait for it. There we go. Um, Well, here's the here's sexual orientation first. I think um, a lot of times people kind of get a little bit confused. Sometimes I'll talk with, with parents and other people kind of new to these conversations and as we talk it becomes clearer and clearer that for them um, being trans is just sort of gay 2.0. You just get gayer and gayer and gayer and then you're trans. (laughs) And that's not how that works. (laughs) Um, And so we need to separate these ideas about sexuality, sexual orientation, affectional orientation is another way of saying that, um, and gender because they're different things. Um, We understand these things in a different way now than we have throughout human history. My, my metaphor for this is always um, in trying to get our minds around this. I usually say, when we looked at the sky um, 2,000 years ago, maybe earlier than that, if you look at the night sky, you see stars, you see maybe some planets, you see the moon, you maybe see some shooting stars. That's about as much as your naked eye can take in. Now we have super, hyper, uber telescopes and we can see way into the depths of space and suddenly we know about things like black holes and supernovas and all these things that we could have never seen before because we have different technology that allows us to see different things. We are getting more specific about stuff that already exists. That's the same thing we're doing in with uh, gender and sexuality. When we're looking at how gender and sexuality works in a human being, we are getting more specific because we're learning more all the time. It's not that this stuff has never existed prior. It's just that we're getting more specific because we know more now. So when we talk about um, sexual orientation, we often talk about how it's sort of internal to you. It's not something that people can see, right? Um, We show it to the world in different ways. One of the reasons that Um, sexuality and gender uh, have sort of been conflated over the years is that we've sort of assumed that anybody who has a different sexuality will present their gender in a different way. And sometimes that's true and sometimes that's not true. That's why if you see a guy uh, who you perceive to be acting in a more feminine way, your first instinct isn't going to be maybe that person is trans. Your first instinct is going to be like, maybe that guy's gay, right? Because we're, we're connecting gender uh, expression and sexual orientation. But they're not necessarily connected. So let's get this next slide over here. Um, When we talk about gender, we're talking about three basic sort of, um, factors. The three basic factors are your body, which includes all the parts of your body that include what we would think of as your assigned sex. So that can be your internal and external reproductive organs. It also includes your hormone levels. It also includes parts of your brain matter. There's a lot of things that go into how your body experiences your gender. The next thing is your gender identity, which is in your brain, and it's about how you understand yourself. Um, Like, put you on a desert island. It's just about your own understanding of yourself, not about your understanding in connection to anybody else. And then third, your gender expression is how we show our gender, which is internal, to other people. So those are sort of your factors of gender. Now, the thing that complicates this is that all of those factors affect each other, right? So, like, we can talk about how your identity is in your brain, but your brain is part of your body, <laughs> and your body is affected by your hormones. And, like, everything is connected. It's, it's, it's a very connected, interconnected sort of web, right? It's hard for us to understand how gender comes about when we think about, like, is it nature or nurture, because there is so much happening at one time. So really the answer to, like, is it nature or nurture is yes, because there's a lot of these factors that are all happening at once. Um, we often talk about assigned sex. Like earlier, I said I was assigned female at birth. That's one of the easier ways to, um, uh, explain what the word transgender means. The word transgender essentially means somebody who has a gender identity that is different from their sex assigned at birth. That's the easiest overall arching way of talking about what transgender people are, who we are. So having said all that, there's a framework here, um, for the the sort of trans narrative. And this is what I was saying when I was talking about, like, needing to check boxes. These are what people tend to say um, in this general narrative about what it means to be trans. One, I've always known. Two, um, I am a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body. That's a very common narrative. Three, I've always hated this gender's stuff. Uh, And four, I have absolutely no question. I am 100% certain. These are sort of the frameworks that we have built for trans folks to explain to other people what it's like to be trans. But these frameworks aren't entirely realistic Um, because even though I know myself to be male, my gender is male, um, I wouldn't say that I have never had doubts about that because whoever is completely 100% certain about anything in their life, I'm not 100% certain that chocolate is really my favorite ice cream flavor, you know? like. There are things that we, there's room for doubt is what I'm trying to get about here. Um, Not to say that, um, I guess I'm just trying to say that when we ask trans people to say, yes, I'm 100% certain, I've always known and I will never change, we are putting forward a um, sort of impossible standard for somebody to have to meet in order to just be seen as a human being and treated as a human being. Um, so keeping that in mind, right, um, then the narrative about like being this gender trapped in another gender's body. That's a really easy way to explain it to people who, um, maybe need like a five second sound bite, but it doesn't show the depth of what's actually going on. Um, I am not a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body. I am me in my body and my body is good period. (laughs) Um, My body and my identity may be different from other people's. Um, but I definitely don't, uh, think that I, uh, have been sort of alien transplanted into something else. I am me and I'm the same me I've been in since I was born. So these are all sort of bits about narratives and they get sewn up in these common misconceptions, right? First misconception, There, all trans people transition. There are two different s- types of transition that we tend to talk about. The first one is social transition and that's about how we might change our names. We might change our clothes, um, anything that's sort of like. Um, a visual signal to other people or a verbal signal to other people about our gender, that's social transition. Medical transition it includes things like um, hormone therapy and what we talk about as gender confirmation surgery now. Um, so those are ways to medically transition. None of that is required in order to be trans. All that's required to be trans is that you have a gender that's different from your assigned sex. But not all trans people choose to transition. That's totally a personal choice. Second one there, uh, being trans is a mental illness. This is a complicated one, actually. You would think it would be really easy. Like, no, of course it's not a mental illness. The problem is, if a trans person wants to um, medically transition, you have to have a letter from a mental health professional saying that they suffer from something called gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is the conflict between who you know yourself to be, gender wise, and how the world sees you. Um, and that can come up in a lot of different ways. For me, during my um, sort of coming to understand myself as trans, one of the main things that would cause me dysphoria was my voice because my voice was a lot higher before I started hormone therapy. I would be going through the grocery store and like checking out all these items and whatever. And the whole time the person ringing me up would be like, you know, sir, 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 this and that. And then at the end of the whole thing, they'd be like, do you want a receipt? And I'd be like, no. (laughs) And they'd be like, I'm so sorry, ma'am. And I'd be like, you got it right the first time. Don't worry about it. That sense of like stress about like somebody's going to figure it out, that's a little bit of what gender dysphoria feels like. And it's not because you're trying to trick anybody into thinking that you're something you're not. It's that you want to be seen for who you are. And there's a stress of like if you walked around and everybody was calling you the wrong gender all day, you would probably be a little bit stressed about that too, right? So that's a little bit about what gender dysphoria feels like. Now, a mental health professional can give you a letter that says you have gender dysphoria in order to medically transition. And so even though being trans is not a mental illness, we still have this system in which it has to be categorized similarly to a mental illness in order to transition. So it's a complicated thing. And there's a lot of resources I can give you to read more about that if you're interested. these last two ones here, gender diversity is a fad, and kids are too young to know, are come out of this thing where people have been like, why are there so many more trans kids than there used to be? Like, is it in the water? Like, is this contagious? Why are there so many trans kids? Um, the answer is, um, gender diversity has existed in pretty much every society the world over throughout time. We have. Um, uh, ancient Syrian records, we have ancient Egyptian records, we have um, records from a whole bunch of uh, folks in South America, Central America, and um, um, South Pacific, South Pacific Oceans. Um, All that talk about people existing who sort of are outside of the boxes of male and female in terms of gender. There are also several societies the world over that have had historically a third gender category that just works in that society because that's how that society is built. It's okay to be something that is not one of these two boxes. Um, One of the reasons we are seeing more trans kids today is because parents are actually becoming more educated and they're listening when their kids tell them that something is up. Um, Fifty years ago, if your little boy came to you and said, Mom, I'm a girl and I just want to wear dresses you would probably not respond very well to that. Like, there were some parents that did, but the majority, it was kind of like, this is not something that we talk about, right? Um, Now, because you hear about trans folks on Oprah and in National Geographic, suddenly parents are like, oh, wait, maybe this is a thing. So what um, psychologists talk about is if a kid is insistent, persistent, and consistent about their gender, then something is probably really going on. So that's one of the things that we've got going with kids these days. Kids these days, what are you going to do? (laughs) So this sort of last question I had here is like, if I don't fit this narrative, if I don't fit this particular narrative about what it means to be trans, am I still trans? What does it mean to be trans? So these are some folks here um, that are some great, uh, were great role models for me. And people that can show the world what it looks like to be yourself in a world that wants you to fit in sort of one of these boxes, right? Um, And it it was really helpful for me to have role models in the world, helpful for me to find people who have stories that are similar to mine. Um, So let's let's come down to that bit, stories that are similar to mine, because that's where the Bible part of this comes in. I'm going to skip all the way to this Genesis slide, maybe. I have a feeling I'm not actually running this slide. I think they're running them (laughs) up there. But let's see if we can get to it. I don't know. Uh, 10. (laughs) See if that works. Oh, one back, sorry. There we go. Um, So when it came down to the Bible for me, it was important for me to figure out where there are other people in Scripture that experienced gender differences. Because to find people like you in the Bible is to be able to connect the Bible to your actual everyday life. To be able to read a passage from Luke about baptism and then be doing a baptism today makes it relevant, right? Um, So for me, I had to figure out, were there other gender diverse people in the Bible? Um, And what does the Bible say about gender diversity? Because I wanted to be part of this story, and I wanted this story to be part of my life. So the first place we look to for gender is, of course, Genesis 1. And this is kind of one of the major passages that people use to talk about, like, why there are really only two genders. Um, Because we have God speaking and saying um, and and creating people, and we have God created humankind in his image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. And it's this beautiful story in Genesis 1 about the creation of the world, and it's all poetic. It's a very poetic way. Like when you read through the whole thing and you can feel it as you're reading it because the same thing happens every time, right? God creates this thing and separates it from this thing and then it was evening and it was morning and God pronounced it good, right? You have the same repetition that happens every day. It was evening, it was morning, it was good. And God created this thing and this thing and it was evening and morning, it was good, right? Same thing over and over. This is poetry. So when we get to... God creating the world. God separates everything into boxes. God creates the world in Genesis 1 by organizing. God is a divine Marie Kondo in this moment. (laughs) Essentially what happens is God says, okay, um, we're going to separate the water below from the water above. Two things. Then we're going to separate the land from the water. Two things. Then we're going to separate the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. Two things. Every way you go, it's separating into boxes and most times binaries. Two things. Um... So when we get to this bit about humans, it's not surprising that God's like, and then there were humans, and two things, right? That's not surprising based on the way that this chapter is written. However, neither the ancient Israelites nor people today would argue that because God creates the land and separates her from the sea, that, ocean, that like uh, estuaries and marshes and coral reefs and all these things that are not quite land and not quite sea, nobody's going to say those don't exist just because they're not in Genesis 1, right? Um, Same thing, when God separates the night from the day and calls it good, nobody's going to argue that dusk and dawn, those middle spaces, don't exist. They still exist. Genesis 1 is a poem that gives us this huge overarching way of looking at the world that doesn't include every single specific thing. It gives us a framework, right? It gives us a a spectrum to look at. So when God creates people, male and female, that doesn't necessarily mean just this thing and just this thing, right? Right? Um, my friend M Barclay, who is, uh, the first trans deacon in the United Methodist Church always says, um, that this is like when we talk about God being the alpha and the omega. That doesn't mean God is just the first and the last. It's naming a paradigm. God is everything, right? God is all in all between the first and the last. So the same thing could be said here when you've got male and female. This is a paradigm that's being named. It's a spectrum that's being named. It's not two specific things. The other thing um, that's specifically, or that's interesting about this specific text is the way that we are created in God's image, right? That is such a powerful theological statement for every one of us, that we are created in the image of God. Um, But it's, uh, the interesting thing about when we think about, like, being made in the image of God is that in Genesis 1, we don't know anything about God except the fact that God is a creator. God makes stuff. That's all we know in Genesis 1 is God makes stuff, and then humans are created in God's image, and we also make stuff, turns out. Um, not to say that that is the extent of our, our image-bearing identities, but in Genesis 1, being made to make stuff makes sense. And it happens in Genesis 2 when uh, Adam, uh, God brings all the animals to Adam and then says, okay, now you name all the animals. God is creating this power-sharing relationship with this being that he's created where God's like, okay, I'm going to create the thing that I'm going to hand to you, and you're going to keep creating the thing, right? So when we talk about how um, trans identities exist, if we go to the next slide, um, a lot of times um, trans theologians will point to this text and point out that like, we as co-creators in the world with God find ways um, to help ourselves be happy and healthy. Uh, we you know, I I should speak for myself, I personally believe that God gave human beings the tools to create medicine to keep us safe and healthy, right? That is a aspect of our creative being, is to be able to make things, to make each other healthy and to make ourselves healthy. So for trans folks, we could see this sort of like creative identity as part of the way that we uh, create our identities. They kind of, it kind of rolls through one to the other. Let's go to the next slide. (laughs) <laughs> this is the other text that people really hold on to when they talk about trans folks, right? Um, and it's one that's specifically about gender expression. So what clothes you're allowed to wear. Um, this is the kind of text where we have to ask two questions. Number one, what's going on here and like what's the basis? And the basis we think um, in the the basis of like why this was text was written was because Um, Dressing in clothing of uh, other genders was something that was associated with the worship of other gods in the ancient world. So this was about the Israelites kind of being separate and worshiping uh, the god of the Israelites rather than any other god. So it was very much tied to uh, keeping away from idol worship, right? So that's one part of this. The other part is, as Christians who don't hold to every single bit of the laws that we find in the Old Testament, we have to ask the question like, is this one of the ones that's going to be big for us or not? And we all have different ways for figuring out what the answer to that question is. But for me, one of the things that I always like to do is find places in the Bible where there are characters that do things that they seem to seem like they shouldn't be doing based on the rules in the text. So I was like, okay, here we've got this text about, you know, you shouldn't wear these kinds of clothes. Are there any people in the Bible who do wear the wrong kind of gendered clothes? Turns out it seems like there is at least one It was a really interesting text study. Um, This is Joseph, and you know Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame. Um, Joseph had this coat of many colors, but the actual, the name for the thing that he wore, we don't really know what that means in English. Uh, In Hebrew, the words are Ketanet pasim, and one of the ways that we learn what ancient words are is to find other places where they're used. Ketanet pasim is used in two places in the whole Bible. One, to talk about the coat that Joseph was wearing, and two, specifically in 2 Samuel to talk about the coat that Tamar was wearing, and it specifically tells us this is the thing that the virgin daughters of the king wear. So for a long time, this is something Jewish scholars have been on for a long time before Christian scholars got onto it. For a long time, Jewish scholars have been asking, why is Joseph wearing a princess dress? (laughs) (laughs) What is going on here? (laughs) Um, And in Jewish theology, in uh, uh, a lot of Jewish theological text study, they do recognize that Joseph does a lot of things that are not sort of normal um, for somebody assigned male at birth. So Joseph seems to be a little bit of a gender bender in the Bible. But when I look at these stories where we've got people that are doing um, things that they necessarily shouldn't be doing and yet they are still considered really good people, Joseph is like one of the only people in all of the Old Testament who is consistently pretty awesome throughout his entire story. Um, how do we hold those things together, right? Uh, so for a lot of trans folks, Joseph is sort of a trans ancestor in the Bible. Not to say that there are trans folks in the Bible in the way that we understand them today. Let's not, you know, let's not run into that road. They understood gender a lot differently than we do. But we have people who are experiencing things in a way that is similar to how trans folks today are experiencing things. For instance, Joseph got the crap beat out of him by his brothers and nearly killed. Um, And then later on, he was in the house of — this is another thing scholars like to look at — when he was in the house of Potiphar, one of the leaders in Egypt, and Potiphar's wife starts coming on to him, and Joseph is so not into it that he literally runs out the door. (laughs) People are like, what's what's going on with Joseph and his sexuality and his gender? We don't know what to do with him. Um, But when we have somebody like this in the Bible who we can be like, hey, that person is a little bit like me. They've had similar experiences. Let's go. Yes. So the eunuchs are just this other group that I want to talk about kind of to give you a little bit of background because there's an arc through scripture that I want to travel with you for a minute. Eunuchs are people in the Bible who uh, usually were people assigned male at birth who were castrated. That is the sort of dictionary definition for what a eunuch is. However, um, the word eunuch, especially in the Old Testament, is used to incorporate basically... um, Lots of different kinds of people, some of whom we would call intersex today. People who are born with differences in sex development that mean that their bodies are not 100% what we would think of as male or female. They have um, maybe indeterminate bodies that we wouldn't categorize as specifically male or female. Um, And so people who were intersex uh, in ancient times were often sort of lumped in with this category of eunuchs. Um, The other thing is the word eunuch sometimes was used to just mean a higher-up official in a court or a palace. And so sometimes we have to be like, which, which of these meanings are being used for this person? For instance, Daniel. In the book of Daniel, Daniel is called a saris, a eunuch. And we don't know if that means he was actually somebody who was castrated or if that was his position in the palace. We don't know. But we do know that eunuchs in the ancient world were considered to be a third gender category. They were outside of just male and female. They were something different altogether, and they had a different place in society. In the sort of hierarchical way that the world worked at that time, you kind of, and still does in some ways, um, you had the sort of um, free men up here, and then you had um, free women and eunuchs almost around the same level. And then you had um, uh, people that were enslaved sort of under that in the same sort of gendered hierarchy, right? Um, Eunuchs were allowed to move sort of between gendered spaces. That's why we usually think of them as like the keepers of the king's harem, right? They didn't challenge anybody's paternity. So they were allowed to be in women's spaces and in men's spaces. But they weren't considered men or women. They were their own special thing. So in the next slide, we've got this quote from Deuteronomy here. Um, that specifically outlaws the castration of any Israelite, which would be really awesome, you would think. (laughs) Like, this is a great thing. However, what happened between these two texts, between the writing in Deuteronomy and the writing in Isaiah, um, the people of Israel were captured and taken taken into slavery in Babylon and then in Persia, and lots of people were castrated either as part of the system of enslavement, or because it was something that was actually chosen because it allowed you to move in the in the society in a different way. Um, and that's a hard thing for us in our sort of Western understanding to get, I think, sometimes, that um, if the choice for you was, do I want to be a slave who makes bricks all day and will die very early? Or do I want to work in the palace and provide for my family? Sometimes that was like a choice that people were willing to make. And so it's a, it's a complicated sort of experience for people in slavery in the Mid-East during this period under the Babylonians and Persians. But what we do know is that when the Israelites came back to Israel after their period of enslavement and started rebuilding Israel, they went back to their foundational texts like Deuteronomy and they said, okay, how are we going to build it better this time? How are we going to build a better Israel this sort of second time around? And they got to this text about no castration and they said, oh no, <laughs> because suddenly Everybody has a member of their family who is a eunuch. (laughs) It's like incredibly common. And so this is a moment where people today in churches who have family members that are LGBT and are in like exclusive churches that don't allow people in who are LGBT, this is the same sort of thing where you're like, wait a minute, I have family members. I have people that I care about and they should be part of this community too. So what happens is the prophet Isaiah speaks in Isaiah 56. God speaks through Isaiah and gives this special promise to eunuchs that they'd never had before. Um, do, Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord, say the Lord will surely separate me from his people, and do not let the eunuch say I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So this is this like, mind-blowing moment where it looks like God has kind of changed God's mind based on what has happened to the people. Suddenly, the situation is different, and so God changes things. So we've got this moment where things seem to change. And in response to that, there was a group of people um, in ancient Israel that moved toward creating a more open temple and a more open community. And then there was a movement toward really, like, locking down on things and keeping to the old laws. And the folks that kind of put the lockdown on things were the ones who eventually won the fight about who was going to control the new temple. So things kind of kept going as they were. This last story here um, in Acts, or uh, actually, let's skip to the next one because I want—I could talk about this Matthew chapter for forever, but let's just skip to Acts. Um, the last story for the eunuchs is um, in the New Testament, and we're seeing Philip going out and talking to people and sort of creating the new church. And Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch, this person who has what we can think about as almost the most complex set of intersecting and interlocking identities of anybody in the Bible because not only is he between sort of boundaries of gender, he's also a person um, of a different uh, ethnicity and race as the people of Israel um, who's been traveling from Ethiopia. He's also a person who's in a weird socioeconomic space because he's a slave, but he's the slave of the queen. Um, He's just in a lot of middle spaces, and so when um, when Philip starts talking to the eunuch, they start reading um, Isaiah together, not that Isaiah 56 chapter, but a little bit ahead of that, and they're reading together, and uh, eventually the eunuch asks Philip, like, what is to prevent me from being baptized? What is to prevent me from being part of this community? And the important thing about that question is that he is not being, this is not a rhetorical question. (laughs) He's not being funny with this. He's legitimately asking, like, which part of my identity is going to be the thing that's going to keep me from becoming part of this community that you just told me about. He really wants to know which one it's going to be. And it could have been any of the things. Because he wasn't Jewish, because he was a eunuch, uh, because uh, he was a slave and like that was still something that the early church was talking about. Like all of these bits of his identity could have kept him from being baptized. And yet Philip doesn't give him any answer. Philip just baptizes him. And so this is why my friend Nicole Garcia, who's the, she's the first um, trans woman of color who's a pastor in the ELCA now. She says this text, this story is a calling for the church. If the early church, one of the first two converts to Christianity, was somebody who was outside of the bounds of gender and ethnicity and race and socioeconomic belonging, then that is what our church is supposed to look like today. So this movement from Deuteronomy all the way to Acts is this larger sort of, (laughs) I was going to say rainbow, but that's too on the nose. It's a large arc through Scripture of moving from exclusion to inclusion for people who have differences in gender expression and gender uh, understanding, both in sort of a cultural sense and an individual sense. So having all said all that, I'm going to skip all the way to, I have to tell the nice person in the balcony which slide I want to go to. Hold on. Can we go to slide uh, 23, please? Yes. So as I'm trying to answer these questions, and I get, I'm going through seminary, I get involved with a really awesome church over in St. Paul, and I start talking to them about all of this stuff that I'm learning about. And I'm talking to my pastor, Jody, who's a wonderful human being, and I'm talking to her, I was talking to her about that axe bit and being like, why isn't the church more like this today? And she's like, well, hey, would you want to do like some kind of thing with the church, like a renaming or something? And I was like, absolutely, let's do it. Um, So pretty soon after I graduated from seminary, we had a renaming and remembrance of baptism for me. And it was, like, one of the coolest things that I've ever been a part of. Um, My whole church came around me. We read the Isaiah text. We read um, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. We talked about what the church is called to be. Uh, We remembered my baptism. And then they made me a cake. How great was that? (laughs) Um, And so for me, as I'm, like, coming to understand these questions about, like, where are we going, and what does the Bible say, and, uh, you know, who am I? Um, These are all things that, I don't know, they all kind of came together in a way, like, in my individual life, and now they're sort of coming together in the work that I do. Um, Let's skip to slide 29, if we could. Um, These are sort of those questions, right, And, and where I came to answers on them. The first one is courtesy of my friend broderick greer who's a wonderful pastor and preacher but he says you don't have to parse your identity and by that he means um when we study ancient languages or or languages today sometimes you'll look at a word and it's like okay try to figure out which part's the root and which part is the ending and which part is the plural and like you're trying to parse that word to figure out what it means you don't have to take your identity and be like okay well My arm is trans, and my leg is a Christian, and my, (laughs) like, you don't have to parse yourself and separate yourself out into these boundaries when you are a whole person, Um, and you don't have to fit those narratives that don't fit you. Second thing I learned is that gender diverse people are both present and ancient, Um, that we have people in the Bible, in the ancient world, we have people around us today that means, that reminds us that we aren't alone in this, that we aren't alone in walking through where we're walking right now. Um, and then the last thing is that the future of Christianity is showing up in affirming and diverse communities, and that was—it's um, something that I see all the time in my work with uh, other trans faith leaders. But it was something that I saw in my life in that moment when my church had that renaming ceremony for me. Right? I saw the way that that worked for me. And now, how many years ago was that? That was 2014. Now 2019. Um, and I just had my pastor come back to me the other day and say, "You know, I." was just talking to another one of our youth who's coming out as trans. (laughs) And she said they specifically mentioned how important it was that they got to see your renaming when they were like seven years old, and now they're like 12, right? And like how important that was for them to see what that looks like Um, and to have somebody kind of present that to them as a possibility in a way that they might not have been able to see it before. So it gave me a lot of hope about like where the church is going in the future. So that's a lot. I know I just hit you with a lot of stuff at once. Um, I think we are going to, um, do you want to do questions now or do you want to continue and do questions afterwards? That sounds great. So that's where we're going to leave this now. Thank you all for listening and let's close in prayer, shall we? God of the universe who gave us so much diversity to look at and wonder at and be part of. Thank you for providing these guiding stories. Thank you for showing us where we fit into these stories. Thank you for showing us places that we can continue to expand the story. Thank you for letting us be part of your story. Thank you for being here with us today. Amen.
0: Amen. Can you guys thank Austin for those words? Austin, that was a gift. Yeah. We are so grateful that you are with us. And we're able to provide that for us. You know, it's one thing to wear um, love thy neighbor shirts. But I also want to thank all of you because you leaned in and you listened to an experience that is not maybe one that you are familiar with and that you can easily discard and not think about. But love is an empathetic move. It leans in and takes in the stories of others and dignifies and seeks understanding and how can we be with you in your story And so, Austin, thank you for bringing that. Thank you for providing eyes and words. And to all of you, thank you for listening. Um, This is our part of the story as a community where we pause and we remember the night where Jesus did not build a fence to keep out those who were different, but instead he stretched the table. And he brought all who were hungry to the table. And he lifted up the bread that was at the middle of the table On the night before he died, he was with his friends, with those that he loved, and he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you get together and you eat of this bread, remember me. Remember the love that I lived and the love that I invited you to take on in your life. He then grabbed a bottle of wine, and as he poured a glass, he lifted the glass and he said, this is my blood shed for the new covenant. Don't forget this story. Don't forget that you are loved. Don't forget that you are called to love. And so every Sunday night when we gather, we, we take part in this to remember our story, to remember our call of duty. and to what we're trying to and aspiring to be all about. How we do that here at the table is you will come forward when you feel ready. You will rip off a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup. Will you stand with me and say the Lord's Prayer together as we do every week? Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.